To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Okay, so we've got an international climate deal. What's next? On this episode of Parts Per Billion, Life After Paris. Hello and welcome to Parts Per Billion, a new environmental policy podcast from Bloomberg BNA. I'm your host, David Schultz. On each episode of Parts Per Billion, we'll feature interesting discussions about what's happening in Congress, in the courts, and in federal agencies. We'll cover everything from air pollution to toxic chemicals to corporate sustainability and, of course, climate change. That happens to be our topic for today, the international climate agreement world leaders reached late last year in Paris. It marked the first time that both developed and developing nations signed on to a plan to address the greenhouse gas emissions that are linked to global climate change. The agreement is set to be finalized later this week in a signing ceremony at the UN. So given that, we decided to sit down with Bloomberg BNA climate change reporter Dean Scott. Dean was in Paris covering the negotiations, and he's already scoping out the next round of climate meetings in Marrakesh, Morocco, later this year. I spoke to Dean about what to expect from Marrakesh and about whether, before we even get there, politics here in the U.S. may scuttle the Paris Agreement. Dean also talked about what it was like being in Paris just weeks after a series of terrorist attacks left the city on edge. There were a lot of concerns about security, you know, as we went into Paris. So there was a feeling that there was going to be this much larger police presence that that people were going to be seeing. And we saw evidence of that. A lot of police and, and heavily armed people in the corners. Do, do you think that that affected the negotiations at all? Um, only peripherally. I guess, you know, initially... A lot of the police presence that we saw in the first couple days was only there because the world leaders were showing up at the very beginning of the negotiations. So in a, in a strange way, the overpowering sense of Paris being full of this you know, police presence and, and security force was essentially just reflecting the fact that world leaders had decided to go on to Paris, had decided to still come anyway, and were not, in, uh, in the sense, being intimidated by the terrorist attacks. You've been covering this, uh, this process for quite a while, and this has been a process. It wasn't just Paris. There were, there were lots of other uh, conferences that, that preceded this. Were you surprised by how this turned out? I think uh, going back from the winter of 2015 into the spring, it was just becoming more and more apparent the mood, the public pr- proclamations of world leaders, um, the expectations that were being set, the fact that environmental groups could live with certain things. I think it was becoming clear that there would be a deal in Paris. So it wasn't a matter of will there be a deal, it's a matter of like what will people give up to get a, a deal. That's right. And, you know, the parameters of a cl- global climate deal were already sort of there before they got into Paris. The focus was still on, of course, what are the countries going to do about their emissions? So that's still a big part of it. And the big um, development in Paris is that those pledges will be routinely uh, strengthened over time with a five-year period. And they'll actually have this stock-taking process where essentially they'll, they'll open up each country's pledges to a sort of criticism and say, is that really what they can do or can they do more, et cetera? Uh, and can countries as a whole do more? What needs to happen 
globally to address the problem. Mm. So there's going to be another climate meeting later this year in Morocco. Where does, I guess, this rank in terms of the importance of, of this compared to Paris? What will be interesting, number one, there's plenty that was agreed to in the, only the most vague terms, in a sense, that has to be implemented in Mor- beginning in Morocco. So many of these things have one, two, three years of work to be done. Uh, the best example I have of that is verifying that what countries are doing to say to cut their emissions under the Paris Agreement, how are you going to judge whether they are actually doing that, right? So that's going to be decided now at meetings like Marrakesh. And in fact, I fully expect there will be even some backsliding. Countries agreed in the most general terms to address these things, but I think we're going to see plenty of news reports of countries in Morocco saying, no, 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 I didn't agree to that. Well, and another dynamic, this is taking place in November, a couple weeks before the conference will be the presidential elections. Let's say um, a Republican does win the the election. How will the Morocco conference uh, look at, at that point? Well, it's kind of like dominoes. There's a domino effect in play. Let's take the Repo- a possible Republican victory first. That, for one, ensures that the Senate remains Republican. There aren't too many scenarios. It's possible, but it's far more likely that the, the, the Senate remains Republican. And the House is probably going to remain in Republican hands regardless of who wins the presidency. So Republican wins in, in November, takes the White House. He has both chambers of Congress Republican. Alternatively, the other outcome, of course, is that Democrats win the White House. People look at that and say, well, that's not as interesting because, isn't it, you know, as a reporter, wouldn't it be more interesting to cover uh, uh, President Trump trying to wrestle with climate change? Would he really want to thumb his nose at uh, the rest of the world and the Paris Agreement that the administration just signed? Right. It would seem like, I guess, if a Democrat won uh, the White House, it would seem like the status quo. You know, things would stay the same in terms of the climate negotiations. Except, I mean, the one, the one thing that I've thought about, Hillary Clinton, if she wins the White House, she's already promised to, to take some, some of the next steps beyond what Obama has proposed on climate. And while that's possible to do administratively, most people, most analysts who have looked at what Obama's trying to do with the power plant standards and, and vehicle efficiency, et cetera, say he's basically wrung out about as much of the emissions reductions that you can get out of that system. Yeah, a little more here and there, right? So there's a question of how much more she can do without Congress. Before uh, the, the Morocco conference and then before the presidential election, though, is there anything that the, the that Congress can do or will do to potentially alter the implementation of the Paris Agreement? Yeah, so this is kind of interesting. The um, what happened around the, the the time of the signing of the Paris Agreement on December twelfth, there was a lot of Republican Senate opposition, sort of threatening that they were going to have this resolution and they were going to say. The Senate speaks as one and does not support what Obama's trying to do. So what's interesting about that is Obama's been trying to get this deal and has signed the U.S. onto the Paris deal without ratifying the deal in the Senate. And there's a lot of, of at least legal precedent for presidents negotiating international agreements with, with executive branch authority. Most, most agreements get done that way. But Republicans see, see it differently and argue particularly if the U.S. is making certain commitments, it, whether the administration calls it pledges or not, Republicans say we should have a role in Congress. So they'll put these resolutions uh, on the floor and do it right around when we have the big signing ceremony for the Paris Agreement 
at the UN headquarters in New York. Secretary Ban Ki-moon has invited all these world leaders to come there, and the idea is, wouldn't it be nice, Republicans argue, to sort of embarrass that in a sense and say, well, yeah, and, and more than half of the U.S. Senate says uh, Obama should have to submit this thing for ratification. The, the resolution would say that Obama should have to submit this for ratification. Does that mean he will have to submit it for ratification? That's sort of where we are in this debate in a sense is that it's why we always remind our readers that it's really only the votes that matter, right? So in this case, you've got easily 50 votes. The problem is you don't have, it's a non-binding resolution anyway. If it were, were a piece of legislation, a typical bill, they wouldn't have the votes to override a veto either, neither, neither the House nor Senate. So at that point, they're not able to compel Obama to bring the Paris Agreement to the Senate. At that point, it becomes more of a uh, trying to politically damage the agreement to some degree and say, you know, if you're a Republican, you can wave that, that vote above your head and say, look, more than 50 senators, maybe 52, 54, something like that. A majority of the U.S. Senate does not support this go-it-alone process, they would say. But votes matter in the end. That is what matters. And if you don't have the votes, then how are you going to stop the Paris Agreement? And if they can install a Republican, if the voters agree with them and install a Republican president in the White House, it still doesn't mean the Paris Agreement dies. It still doesn't mean that that the next president can withdraw. Um, There's a lot of things that have to go into that next president's mind. It's not simply, you know, a campaign promise here and there. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. There are very delicate sort of global political things at play. Our relationship with China, one of our more positive developments with China, for example, is our work with them toward a global climate deal. So you start pulling these legs out from underneath that stool because you don't like the climate deal. It's, now, it's, now it's part of a whole fabric of relationships with all these countries. Some of them you might need on your side in a Syria situation or another part of, of the world. So it's easy to say right now that, that you're a candidate that's just going to tear up the Paris Agreement. It's a, it's a little more complicated than, than that. And then finally, um, you know, taking a, a big step back, do you think that in, in five years or you know, 20 years, who knows, uh, we'll look back at Paris and see that as sort of a turning point? Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, you know, I think if I flip that question around, it, it, it would be like, I would think of it this way. If, if in 20 years they've made progress, and so let's just say we live in this world where all these things are really starting to happen and they're turning sort of the, the page on, on climate change, it will be because in part of the Paris Agreement. For the first time, you know, countries had to agree that it's everyone's responsibility, and they did that. And there's a, a fair amount of emissions reductions that will be taken if the countries do what they say. They're not enough. They're somewhere in the order of a third or maybe even as little as a fourth of what's necessary. But it's a start. But the question is, does it mean that, you know, we finally got a handle on this? And that part, I don't think we know yet, because the concern is, uh, I'll, my best example that I've been t- talking to people this month about is, is India. And India has a pledge under the Paris Agreement to reduce by roughly, you know, a third the carbon intensity of its economy. And what is its emissions trajectory? Well, it has, a, you know, let's say three gigatons roughly in 2010, and its emissions trajectory, even with all those pledges on the table, 
is somewhere between five and six. So it's, its emissions are likely going to double by 2030. And their population uh, is going to increase somewhere between 250 and 300 million people by 2030. It's almost approaching the size of fitting another United States in population inside of India by 2030. So we have to do more because if we have countries that are rapidly growing like India with rapid population, they have to be able to grow and they have to be able to develop and provide electricity to their, to their citizenry and grow their middle class. But you also can have a situation where countries are doubling their emissions by 2030 because there's not enough time left to reduce temperatures to a point where we can kind of keep that in check long enough to keep this from being a real, a really a sort of calamitous outcome in the next couple decades. Bloomberg BNA climate change reporter Dean Scott. For more of his reporting on international climate policy, visit our website at bna.com. You can read Dean's reporting on climate change in Bloomberg BNA's Daily Environment Report, a source for comprehensive coverage of the day's top environmental news. Start a free trial of Daily Environment Report by visiting bna.com slash daily podcast. That's bna.com slash daily hyphen podcast. Parts Per Billion was produced by myself with help from Jessica Coombs and Rachel Daigle. The theme music for Parts Per Billion is A Message by Jazar. It was used under a Creative Commons attribution share like license. More information can be found at betterwithmusic.com. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.